this table, and as we consider and continue to discern our calling as a church, as a local assembly, to order our life according to your revealed word, I pray that we would work diligently here to understand and that by the teaching of the Spirit of God that we will come to discern more readily who we are as your people, that we would be faithful to the Scriptures and faithful to the calling that we have to represent you in this world. We need your help. We need your aid. I pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ as Savior who are among us. I pray that the warmth and the grace and the forgiving power of Christ would be seen in our time together in the Word here. And in all that we accomplish as a church, may your name be exalted. We thank you for the work of Christ, for his death in our behalf, for his resurrection power. And as we commune in that, and as we worship week in and week out, I pray that your name would here be hallowed. And again, that you will uniquely now meet with us as we come before your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Why are you here today? For what purpose do we gather as a local church week after week? There are many reasons, but in the broadest, most basic sense, we gather to worship God. This is so obvious it hardly needs to be said. We gather to identify ourselves as the followers of Christ in a world that is filled with false gods and idolaters. We gather to bear witness to the world and the angelic realms that we have been purchased by the blood of the crucified, risen, reigning, and returning Christ. We are here in His name. We are here to assemble as members of Christ's body to magnify the one true and living God, our Savior and our Sovereign Lord. Simply said, we assemble here to worship the Lord. So if you are not here to worship the Lord, you are at very best lost. You're at very best searching. At worst, you may be guilty of idolatry. The sin of idolatry is committed not only by those who worship a false god, but by those who worship the true God in a wrong way for reasons that have ulterior motives. What we are doing here today is no mystery. I'm not teaching anyone, I don't think anything, by saying this. It is widely recognized, if not almost universally recognized, that Christians gather to worship God. But I ask secondly, how are we to do that? What are we to do in worship as a local church? Why do we proceed the way that we do? I'd like to hinge the discussion on Jesus' words as he stood at the pivotal moment in salvation history. As he stood at that moment fulfilling all that had gone before all that had pointed to him, and as he looked forward into the future and looked in some sense to this very gathering, to this day in which we gather to worship Christ crucified and risen. From that vantage point, we can look back 
And from that vantage point, we can look forward. And there were some who would disagree and say that we we cannot know with any degree of certainty what we should do in worship. That it's just a matter of cultural preference or pragmatic results or tradition. But I think as we hear the words of Christ and as we consider all of Scripture in one sense together today, from the vantage point of the words of Jesus that we have heard read here earlier, we can know how to worship. We can know what God intends for us here as we gather week in and week out. I invite you back to John 4, which we have read together, and I'll just center in on one thought in this passage. But John chapter 4, for several months, Jesus has ministered in Israel's southern region of Judea. His bold message of repentance, coupled with his decisive driving out of the merchants from the temple courts in Jerusalem, have galvanized the Jewish authorities against him. You see in John chapter 4 and verse 1, when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea. Now it's not that the Pharisees had this scoring sheet and they were worried that John's reputation was being overrun by Jesus. They didn't like either one. But the point is that Jesus was growing in popularity. They had a problem with John the Baptist. They're going to really have a problem on their hands now as Jesus is gaining more disciples than even John the Baptist. You could say, verse 1 is indicating, they want Jesus dead. They want him out of there. Jesus strategically at that point realizes that tensions are high in Judea, and so he heads northward to the region of Galilee. Here he will minister for the next 18 months in relative freedom from the uptight Jewish authorities. There's far more Gentiles there. It's further from the center of religion at at Jerusalem. And with a ministry base near the coastal highway, news of his message and miracles will spread into other lands by means of travelers passing through Galilee and on to these other places. So he's journeying north and from Judea passes into Samaria and on this particular day stops to rest at a well dug centuries earlier by the patriarch Jacob. The well is situated about a half a mile from the Samaritan town of Sychar and near the ruins of Shechem. He is hot, dehydrated, exhausted, and Jesus slumps down by the well as his disciples purchase food in Sychar. A Samaritan woman stops to draw water from the well and Jesus speaks to her, an unprecedented exchange as she notes, because Samaritans and Jews don't have much to do with each other. We assume that they would sell Jesus' disciples food, But as far as talking, conversing, getting along, and even the protocols of the day of a man talking to a woman, this was all a bit unique, and she's uh, impressed by it and wonders why Jesus wants to dialogue with her. We'll pick up at verse 16 with the dialogue where Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman was what the Proverbs would call a moral fool, we would assume. Her soul was shriveled, it was empty. She was not stupid. 
she knew she was talking to a special man. She knew she was talking to a prophet. And so she says, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Squirming at Christ's knowledge of her relational failures, she shifts the conversation to religion. From their vantage point, where they're situated, they can almost certainly see the ruined Samaritan temple. It once proudly, it once stood proudly perched on Mount Gerizim. So Sychar is very close to this hill, and the well is very close to this hill, and they can look up there and see the ruins of the Samaritan temple. This has been uh, fairly clearly demonstrated by archaeologists. Our fathers, she says, verse 20, worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So perhaps pointing upward to the site about a half mile to the southwest, she says we worship, our worship is centered on this hill. There's still sacrifices there today. This hill where, you remember, the patriarch Abraham first offered sacrifice in the promised land. This is our hill. Your hill's Jerusalem. So, you're a Jewish prophet, I'm a Samaritan woman, we have different religions, what are we to make of that? Anything to get the focus off of her failed marriages. This prophet had poked a little too hard at the inside. Let's talk religion. I know we're not going to agree on that. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Where is she focused? Certainly she's trying to get away from her own life, but she's focused on location. Jesus is focused on what? On timing. He subtly points to the momentous salvation historical shift that is soon to rock the universe. Soon his death will fulfill and complete the sacrificial system. Soon he will become the meeting place with God, as the temple then was. As a prophet, Jesus reveals that a particular kind of worship will soon displace any particular place of worship. It is true the Samaritans worship on this hill. It is true the Israelites worship in Jerusalem on that hill. But there's a day coming when we won't, it won't be connected to place. God's people will still worship Him, Jesus assures her, but in a different way. Now, some might think that Jesus is just downplaying religious differences between Jews and Samaritans here. Well, let's get past this little debate of the two hills. And let's talk about what we share in common. We share in common the same God. Samaritans worshiping the same God, although in a wrong way. Let's get past this and let's move beyond and above the discussion. Is Jesus saying here, essentially, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, no big deal, we're all sharing the same God, we all are moving the same way? Notice what he says in verse 22. Certainly not going there. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation 
is from the Jews. That's the Jesus you're not supposed to believe in, says so many Christian churches. Don't read this verse. He doesn't sound very accommodating, does he? He's not accommodating to whatever she believes. He is ordered to the truth. You do not know what you worship. That is, you do not know the God you claim to serve. God chose to work His salvation purposes through Abraham and to center the true faith at the Jerusalem temple where His law meticulously ordered Israel's worship of Yahweh. Indeed, there... His glory has resided in the past. By accepting only the first five books of the Bible, the Samaritans twisting them to fit their own imaginations, they failed to truly know God. And Jesus notes this. They rejected the books of Joshua through Malachi and thus failed to know God or worship on His hill. What they should have been doing is trekking south to Jerusalem to worship God there, as prescribed in the Bible. For this reason, Jesus insists the Samaritans stand outside the stream of God's saving purposes. By contrast, the children of Israel stand in that stream of salvation, and they know the true God through His Word. Israel is in rebellion. They're right now rejecting their Messiah, but Jesus says it is through this means that salvation is gained. But let's get back to the point. So he's, he's not minimizing the differences. She is lost, and he tells her that she is lost. Your religion is taking you down because it's worshiping the true God in the wrong way. But back to the point, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What does it mean that they will worship in spirit? Thinking about this theologically as we take the whole Bible, this certainly does not mean that they will worship Him in a spirited manner though that may well be the case and a good thing, but that's not the point here. They will worship in spirit. Thinking back on Revelation, in His essential nature, we learn that God is spirit. And He chose to breathe His spirit into the body of Adam. Animated by God's spirit, Adam was created to commune spiritually with God. And when Adam sinned, his spirit was separated from God. Sin blocked his ability to worship, and we fell into that same state. Spiritually dead. Spiritually separated from God. But when we trust Christ as our Savior, our spirits are reborn. They are regenerated. They are reconciled to God, enabling us to relate to Him in spirit. To spiritually relate to God again. We relate to God physically every day. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He allows the sun to shine upon us even in our rebellion. But through conversion, through trusting Christ as Savior, our spirits are reborn. They're regenerated and we become alive to God. And we walk with Him in fellowship as we were created to do. 
And so we worship God from the depths of our being, in our very spirit, our soul, our will, our affections, our memories, who we are. We worship God in spirit. Worshiping God in spirit does not again mean singing in a spirited manner or something of the sort. It means worshiping as regenerate souls. It means communing with God as the redeemed of the Lord. It simply means we worship as people who have trusted Christ's saving death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, who have been remade to now walk in fellowship with God again. It means we assemble as the church of Jesus Christ to enter God's presence together, expressing our joy in God and exulting in His greatness and goodness because we are alive in Him. It's this spiritual life that is at the heart of the worship of those whom the Father seeks. And they are to worship in truth, secondly, verse 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Those who worship in spirit those who are regenerated, and those who worship in truth. Now in John 17, Jesus will pray for His people, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The truth is the word of God. It is what God has revealed. God's revealed word is the seed that forms and regenerates the local church. And likewise, God's revealed word is the truth that directs and orders genuine worship. This is crucial to our understanding of of the local church and to our understanding of this particular series. Let me say it again. God's revealed Word is the truth that directs and orders worship. This means the Bible is to order the elements the aspects of our worship, and it is to order the content of our worship. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, from this vantage point, as Jesus says that, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. I'd like us to look backward in time. And here we're drawing upon our knowledge of Scripture's the Old Testament text, and some may have more knowledge of this than others, I understand, but just try to think back on uh, the Old Testament, because we don't have time to read all of these texts, but the Old Testament repeatedly emphasizes that we must worship God on His terms. If you would read through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and you don't come out with that idea, you're really missing something. This is a point that's made repeatedly. We must worship God on His terms. So Genesis 4, we find the first family sacrificing animals to God. We're not privy to the instruction that God gave, but He clearly counseled them to sacrifice animals as a means of atonement for sin. Sin against God requires death. It requires a penalty. That penalty is death, and in His grace, God says you can sacrifice an animal in the place of the sinner. He teaches the first family that. And once so instructed, God accepts Abel's worship. Remember that? But He rejects Cain's. Abel worshiped God in an acceptable way. Cain worshiped God 
in a non-acceptable manner. We move to the book of Exodus, and God delineates how He is to be worshipped there. Before the Exodus from Egypt, He establishes the Passover festival. This is what you will do. This is how you will do it. You will do it every year. He hasn't even delivered them yet. But He sets them up for worship and says, here is how you will do it. After the Exodus, God's law issued on Mount Sinai forbids His people to make images of Him. Words. Not images are the way to know God in worship. The essential portal in the worship of God's people is the ear gate, not the eye gate. God sets this up. He directs us this way. God also details on Mount Sinai the construction of a tabernacle. Here God will dwell with His people, and here they will approach Him on His terms. Leviticus 10 remember the priests Nadab and Abihu, having received this word, this law of how they will worship God, Nadab and Abihu get innovative in worship. They offer incense that is not sanctioned by God, that is not appropriated by the priests of Israel. Should not be. And what did God do? Did He reward them for their innovative worship ideas? No, what God did in Leviticus 10 is He executed them. God demonstrates that He will be worshipped on His terms and only on His terms. In 2 Samuel 6, David transports the Ark of the Covenant, the seed of God's presence in the tabernacle. He transports it in a manner that is not in accordance with God's law. And what happens? Uzzah reaches out because the ark is is about to fall to the ground, he touches the ark against what God has said, even though he thinks he's doing a good thing. And what does God do? Why, thanks, Uzzah, for helping me out here with the ark of the covenant. You really did a nice thing. No, he strikes him dead for touching the ark. 2 Chronicles 26, King Isaiah entered the temple to offer incense on the altar. And that right there... Of course, alerts us, King Uzziah enters the the temple. And he offers incense there. He's not to be in there. Only the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, are allowed into that place. And he is in violation of God's law. And God strikes him with leprosy immediately. To the point where Uzziah, arguing against the other priests that he should be allowed to do this in his pride, now rushes out of the temple. He wants nothing to do with it. Now, frankly, there's a lot of people that don't love that God. They don't have time for a God like that. They don't have a God, time for a God who says, this is the way that will be, and if you walk out of line, I will bring death. They don't love that God. They don't have time for that God. They don't like that God. And they write that God out of the Bible. In all of these disciplinary cases, God is a God of pure and absolute love. He's a God of grace, a God of gentle kindness in all of this. And He is a God of holiness and judgment. He's both. And He does this with His people to alert us to the reality, to teach us the truth. We must approach Him on His terms. 
You can't see God in the wrong way, and he just stands back and lets this happen. He must be worshipped on his terms. And he cares how we worship him. He's not at all impressed by human innovation, but insists on being approached on his terms. So from where Jesus stands, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We look back in time to what God has revealed, and it is very clearly he must be worshipped on his terms. Now let's look forward. On the other side of the cross, where we stand today in the stream of salvation history, this time when we worship in spirit and in truth. On this side of the cross, Christ has fulfilled the temple sacrifice. He has become the meeting place with God. He is the final sacrifice, the final high priest. All of the system has been fulfilled. And now His people worship Him in spirit and in truth. The local church is to gather to worship the Lord in this way. And so as we look at ourselves on this side, we're not going to reinstitute animal sacrifice. Christ has fulfilled that with the final sacrifice. We don't continue to kill Jesus. He died once. And that settled it. We're not going to institute a new temple where we meet with God because, again, He is that meeting place. And we now are the living temple of God on this side of the cross. He has fulfilled the sacrificial system. He is the great high priest. All of this fulfilled in Christ. Now on this side, worshiping in spirit and in truth, what are we to say about our worship? Let me draw out just five points there not perfectly related, but just five observations for us as we consider our own worship. The first point is this. Our worship must be ordered by the truth of God's revealed Word. Our worship must be ordered by the truth of God's revealed Word. And you say, isn't that pretty obvious? It's not. There are even Bible-preaching churches that disagree with that statement. We would say that God forms the church by His Word and Spirit. We are regenerated by responding to the truth of the Gospel and thus identified with Christ's body. And once saved, how do we grow? We grow in the Word. We grow as disciples of all that Christ teaches us in His truth, in His Word. So we're saved by the revealed Word of God. We are progressively sanctified by the truth of God's Word, which is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. What are we thinking then to conclude that God's Word has nothing definitive to say about how we worship Him? Some local churches hold that we are free to worship God as we please. To worship in spirit and in truth on this side of the cross means that we can do whatever we choose to do. As long as the Bible does not forbid a practice, we're free to worship as we choose. As long as we do not contradict a biblical principle, God is pleased with our innovations. Such churches focus on what works, what people like, what stimulates the greatest emotions, what draws the largest crowd, and for sure what it will not bore people. We would say, as a church, I believe, I believe we would agree on this point, that we need 
God's word in worship, and his word provides the direction that we need for how to worship. God's word orders everything in our lives, does it not? It orders our sex lives. It directs the nurture and discipline of children. It reveals a work ethic that we are to pursue. It orders the thoughts of our minds, the words of our tongues, the affections of our hearts, and it has nothing to say about how we worship. It does. Our worship must be ordered by what God has revealed in the New Testament text. Number two, the New Testament directs us to include specific elements in our corporate worship. I'll take this a step further. I believe that there are specific elements or things we do in worship that the New Testament defines. These elements are not pointedly spelled out in one lengthy passage. And so we need to proceed gently and with an appropriate measure of flexibility. This is not to put us as the worship police who come down with a hard hammer on everybody who might step a toe in this way or that differently than we do. Having said that, 1 Timothy reveals that we are, in 4.13, to read the Bible in worship. We are to teach the Bible and we are to preach the Bible. And we are to pray in corporate worship, chapter 2 and verse 1. So looking at a book that was written to help order a local church, we are to read and teach and preach the Bible, and we are to pray in assembly. And obviously in ways that are biblically directed, as all prayer is to be. In Ephesians 5 and verse 19, and Colossians 3 and verse 16, these passages reveal that we are to sing to one another and we are to sing in worship to God. I've never been impressed that the idea of singing to one another means we need to face each other as we sing, as such, but we are singing to one another to exhort and encourage one another and singing in praise to God. These texts indicate this. And perhaps not intended as a formal element of worship, we are to admonish and build up and encourage one another as we assemble. Colossians 3.16, Hebrews 10.25. I'd love to go through all of these texts, but we, we are lacking time here today to do so. But we're connecting these to specific passages. And while it may not be an essential element of New Testament worship, there is precedent for giving to the Lord's work every Lord's day. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. I don't believe that that means every single Christian must give something financially every week, but there certainly is precedent there for the church receiving gifts every week. 1 Corinthians 16. It goes without saying, perhaps, but let's say it. We also observe baptisms as God brings new believers into the fold, and we observe the Lord's Supper as the Lord has directed us. The New Testament does not provide a single order of service that we must follow each week. It never says that if we fail to have a specific, let's say, a specific reading of the Bible one week, that we have sinned. It doesn't state that objectively. There are a number of practices we find in the New Testament church that may not be intended for us today. And we can legitimately discuss and even debate such matters such as foot washings. So we do see evidences of foot washings. We can debate whether that was intended to be an element of worship. But Eden Baptist Church 
let us resolve that by God's grace we will strive to order our worship by the truth of God's revealed Word. I think there must be a degree of flexibility because there is not absolute certainty. Again, there's not one passage that lays an order of service out for us. And we will differ with other believers. Let us be gracious there and cautious there. But may we order our worship to the Word of God. Let us resolve that we will not permit pragmatism or the demands of our culture to derail this emphasis. If people think corporate prayer is too boring, if they think it is a waste of time to read a lengthy text of Scripture and have a message from the Bible, if they think that singing is a mere ritual to keep the musical types involved, well, let them find another church. Or, I would say, let them change. Bring them to the text of Scripture and say, this is why we sing. This is why we read the Scriptures. This is why there is preaching and teaching in our church on the Lord's Day. It is not because we came up with a great idea. It's not because we're following some ritual. It's because God's Word says, do this. And we're striving to put it into practice. So even the way we go about the pieces here. You might not think much of it, but there's a reason why we place announcements, what I would say, is after worship. Now, we're all still here, so it's a really good place to make announcements because we can catch everybody at one time. But, and it doesn't have to be at the end. It could be at the beginning. I'm not saying a church is in sin against God if they put it somewhere in the middle. But we, as a church, purposefully place announcements at the end of worship because it's not worship because the Bible has not instructed us to give announcements during the service. There's a reason why we do baby dedications, baby recognitions before the service. Because there's nothing in Scripture that says we should do baby dedications. That's just a communal opportunity for us to recognize babies, to recognize their parents, to see who goes with whom to pray for them, to identify as a church with the task of raising these children, it's really not seen as part of our worship service. Again, I'm not saying it'd be evil if it came in somewhere further, but we seek to do that purposefully. This is, in a sense, before the service we're having this recognition because we're all here. You will notice that there are no dramatic skits in our services. Why? Because the Bible does not direct us to do performances and drama. There's a lot of churches that do. I will admit I've laughed very hard at some of the skits in some churches I've visited. They're great humor. But we ask the question, what does the Bible say we are to be doing in assembly? There is no indication that we are to be involved in dramatic presentations. Or skits. Again, we do these things. For instance, on VBS, we do have a, a skit and a, a play that we do. That's evangelism. That's working with children. That's not a worship service. And I think there's an appropriate place for such things. You won't find any light shows or any smoke coming out of the stage. Sometimes it's probably coming out my ears a little bit, but uh, not for that reason. There's not going to be any acrobatics. We do not have karate 
demonstrations in our church services. We don't even have singing Christmas trees. The reason is this point. The New Testament directs us to include specific elements in our corporate worship, and we as a church, I think with a flexible and gracious spirit, but we as a church are concerned to stay within those revealed guidelines. We're striving to order our worship according to the text of Scripture. Number three, these elements of worship must be saturated with and ordered by God's revealed Word. So we might be doing the right things, but we're not filling them with the truth of God's Word. How foolish would that be? To preach God's Word, to proclaim the truth of God's Word in a way that is unbiblical. So we read the Bible, preach the Bible, teach the Bible, speak out its implications in what we trust to always be biblical application. We sing biblical truth, we pray biblically, and form prayers. The truth is rooted in all the, these, of these elements. We're to give, we are to give in a biblical manner, to observe the Lord's Supper and baptize believers as the Bible directs. We're to relate to one another in edifying ways, seeking to serve as the body of Christ in our corporate worship. The Bible is not concerned with the fact that we place these elements on this table or the size of them. It does not concern itself with how we have a portable baptistry and fill it with warm water rather than shocking people to death. It, 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 it's these are it, that we sit in pews, men and women, uh, young and old, mixed together. Uh, it, it doesn't address these things. These are matters which coming back to the elements and to the content of those elements. A little bit more on that in a moment. But number four, the worship of the New Testament local church is formational, spiritual discipline. We must learn to pursue in spirit and in truth. Now, this is a radical statement in our day, sadly. But the goal of, the new, of, the local, church, of local church worship is not, quote, a rip-roaring good time has, was had by all in unfettered emotional arousal in the song service, followed by a man-centered speech that makes us feel happy and inspired to try harder and be better people. The goal of worship is to meet with God. The goal is the exaltation of God for who He is and for what He has done. It is the gathering of the family of God as the family of God to meet in God's presence and there revel in His glories, glories revealed in His written Word. It is to celebrate His saving grace and to stimulate one another to love Him and find our soul's deepest satisfaction in Him. We can only do this if every element is filled with biblical content, if what God has said we are to be doing is saturated in the truth of His Word. Worship then is, and here's the point, it's formative. That is, we become like the one that we worship, but it is also true that how we worship is formative. And that requires discipline on all of our parts. It is not difficult to turn church services into very entertaining times where we consider very little truth. 
It takes work and effort, discipline, and a right orientation to come into a congregation where there is careful thought about the elements of the worship, ordered to Scripture and saturated in it. That takes discipline. And in our entertainment-based world, many people don't think about church that way. They don't think about, I come to church to work. I come to church to worship, and I will have to give myself to that discipline. Number five, and it's a bit unrelated, but I'd like to just make this point. Properly ordered biblical worship binds together faithful churches across cultures and nations. Culture will have a substantial influence on every local church. Instrumentation, dress, seating arrangements, order and length of service will differ somewhat widely. However, churches that are biblically ordered will worship similarly throughout the world. Churches that add ornate, complicated, ritualistic elements to the biblical order. Churches that add liturgies and pompous ceremonies and all matter of paraphernalia in their worship. There's other churches in this world that can't do that. They wouldn't even know how to do that. The only way it can happen is that they transport their ornate methods through initiated leaders to begin to conform others to their ways. Such worship is neither in spirit or in truth. On the other end of the spectrum are churches whose electronic stage shows, dramatic presentations, marketed announcements, video clips, and the like isolate their worship from the global communion of Christ's body. I'm not saying we should shun all technology or all economic advantages in order to identify with believers in the, in the two-thirds world or something like that. I'm saying that we should exercise care that our cultural orientation does not set us on the periphery of the Bible's simple, ordered, edifying, Christ-centered, word-saturated plan for worship. I'm saying that biblically ordered worship will bind us globally with all who worship in spirit and in truth. Those who come from other nations into our assembly who look at the aspects of our worship should readily identify with it. They should not say, I have no categories for this. I'm lost here. They should say, oh, that's the reading of Scripture. Oh, we're going to pray to God. We do that in my country. Oh, this is the exposition of Scripture, the exhortation. This is the teaching of biblical doctrine. I get that. I understand that. We do that in our church. It binds us together far more than our cultural distinctions differentiate us if we're ordered according to God's revealed word. This struck me in a rather unique way when I was sitting with a church in Lithuania. Every single person I met in every single church, several churches that, where I was there, all first-generation believers. They had no background in Christianity, in true Christianity. And in this church, in this very isolated place, I sat with this church in worship in a circle in a living room. We were packed in there in one circle, no double seating, nobody on the outside of the circle, just one circle around this little table that had food on it. 
And we sat there for well over an hour in worship on the Lord's Day. As I walked into that place, I said, I have, this is so strange. This world is so strange. But as that service developed, I said, they're doing everything we're doing at Eden Baptist Church. There was a reading of Scripture. There was a preaching. The pastor preached a sermon. There was an element of teaching there. We prayed together. On that table was the Lord's Supper, and we shared the Lord's Supper together. I said, I feel very at home here. Very strange world. Very different setting than I'm used to. But there was something that bound me together with that church, and it was these elements that the Scripture reveals. There, were no, there was no instrumentation that day. The pastor sat on a chair while he preached his sermon. But we worshiped in spirit and in truth. When I'm in India, there's a, the instrumentation is a single drum. In, in the, it just seems odd, but it works. And the people sing. And they even sing, when I'm there, once in a while I want a song in English so I can really get a hold of it and sing it out, but not usually. It's not what they sing. They sing in their language a unique way. It's different than how we sing here, but it's singing. It's spirited. It is people expressing praise to the Lord, and I get it. And then the preacher stands and preaches the sermon. And in this setting... In every place I've ever been in India, the women sit on one side and the men sit on the other. And they sit usually in order of age. The little ones up front where everybody can see them and, and <laughs> keep them in line. And the older ones on seats in the back, most people sitting on the floor. I don't know, what categories do we have for that? But as I get in the middle of that, I'm at home. There's the preaching of the word. There's the singing of songs. Offerings are collected. The Word is taught. It binds us together. So back to 4 and verse 23. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There is the command. And before that in verse 23, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Namely, people who worship in spirit and in truth. May God find those people at Eden Baptist Church. May He find them here. People who come willing to discipline their minds, to submit to the direction of God's Word, and to worship in spirit and in truth. For many years I've said to prospective visitors and attenders, we will make no effort to entertain you. We're not going to try to bore you, but we'll make no effort to entertain you. We will make no effort to assure you leave feeling good about yourself. You, you might, but that's not our point. We will not attend to your every need or want. We won't even pretend to meet every need and want that you have. If you come with your checklist, we're not really impressed by it or worried about it. But God helping us. Here in this church, you will meet with God. You will consider His Word. You will lift prayers of praise to Him. You will seek Him in petitions and in prayers of confession. You will meditate upon His Word. You will see the Lord. By God's grace in the 
proclamation of the Word in its reading, in its singing, in our prayers that are biblically ordered. By God's grace, you will meet with God. And that's what this is all about. With all that we never can or ever will promise people, may we promise them that our worship will be thoughtfully and purposefully ordered according to Scripture so that people worship the Lord, or at least able to. That there will be a solid feeding on His Word. That there will be prayers. That we will sing songs saturated in His truth and calibrated to bring glory to His great name. May this be our cause as we gather to worship. So in this series, as we strive to order our life as a local church, this area of worship is crucial. And it is crucial that we think biblically, that we think according to God's thoughts and follow His plan for our life as a church together. Lord, we give thanks to You for what You have done to direct us. And even though we've not set our eyes particularly on all of these individual texts, we thank You for the teaching of our Savior and for the idea that You are seeking those who worship You in spirit and in truth. May You find such worshipers here. We confess our sin, our self-orientation, our unfaithfulness to You. I pray that here in this place we would grow and develop and mature. And for those who do not worship in spirit and in truth because they do not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you draw them, mysteriously draw them in to love what they do not now see or appreciate. And as we prepare to gather before this table and to continue in worship according to your word, as Christ has directed us to so gather, we do so to remember his death. And I ask that you prepare our hearts for that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand together as we continue in worship and as we prepare for our Lord's Supper as we sing Wonderful Merciful Savior.